My friends who listen to Future Primitive, I am on the phone today with Evelyn Reisdyke. She is in Maine, and I have her book in my hand, The Nepalese Shamanic Path, Practices for Negotiating the Spirit World. Evelyn Reisdyke is an internationally recognized shamanic healer, teacher, speaker, and author of several books, including The Norse Shaman and The Spirit Walker's Guide to Shamanic Tools, teaching advanced experimental shamanism through her organization, Spirit Passages, she finds creative inspiration and renewal where she lives on the coast of Maine. Uh, her book is written together with Bola Banstola, a 27th generation Nepalese shaman, or Jankri. With his wife, he teaches traditional Himalayan shamanic practices in Europe and in North America and leads groups on shamanic tours of Nepal. He divides his time between Italy and Nepal. Welcome, Evelyn. Oh, thank you for having me. So, uh, my first question would be very practical. How did you decide uh, to write the book with. Oh, that's an easy one. I, yeah. I have known Bola now for a number of years and um, had the pleasure of uh, his teachings and traveling with him in Nepal. And what I... Uh, I agreed with him. I, you know, we had this wonderful, uh, actually, argument at our, at our table saying, I think you need a book. And he says, well, I don't have time to write a book. And what have you. So we argued a bit. I said, Bola, I will write the book. Huh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so, you know, he said, well, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. And it, what really, I started the book, and when they had the big earthquake in Nepal, that sort of lit a fire under both of us. Because the traditions in Nepal are still uh, very intact, but with the earthquake, there is... Um, a sense of the fragility of not only the landscape there and the and the ancient buildings that you find there, but there's a renewed sense of the fragility of an indigenous tradition in our culture. And even though he is quite vital, he's in his 50s and um, he's got lots of energy, there are not people in uh, in his life in Nepal that would necessarily take over his role. So uh, he teaches, again, extensively in Europe. He teaches in North America. He's right now actually teaching a retreat in Iceland. And 
he is very generous with uh, all of his teachings, but there's there's so much depth to uh, Nepalese shamanism. It's it's a continuous lineage. He's a 27th generation. That's uh, a continuous tradition, and there are two other generations of shamans or jankri in his family as well. So there's there's just so much depth that it's actually difficult, I think, for Westerners to be able to um, get more than just the surface without some background, some context. And so I think our collaboration actually worked really brilliantly because even though he's fluent in English, it's difficult to translate the embedded culture when you're transmitting ceremonies and transmitting some teachings. It's difficult, particularly since... Western cultures primarily um, kind of um, more influenced by the traditions of the Levant, so Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They have a very different worldview of uh, the divine, for instance. And I was raised uh, as a Methodist, a, a Protestant, uh, in when I was a child, so that I understand that tradition, those traditions. The idea that you come in flawed and your goal is to get closer and closer and closer to the divine through following the teachings that are set out in either the Torah, the Bible, or the Koran, with the goal that you would eventually make it across the finish line into heaven. <laughs> and in the East, it's very different. In Eastern traditions, you are aware uh, that you every, you and everything else and everyone around you is divine, and your path is one of continuous uh, awareness, you know, a deepening and deepening awareness of what that means. What does it mean, and how do I continue to refine that and eliminate those things in my consciousness that would have me feel separate? So they're, they're two very different perspectives, and just as the shamanism of South America is influenced and sort of absorbed Catholicism, the shamanism of right. Nepal has absorbed uh, Hinduism and as well as the the uh, more ancient traditions that were there. So it's this uh, interesting um, mix of trying to put put students in the West together with these traditions in the East and have them really get a better sense of uh, that foundation that lies under it. And, you know, the book can only do so much. But I, I, it was my hope to at least help to build bridges for people to get more deeply into the, the experience of Nepalese shaman and then hopefully uh, seek him out and actually work with him as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that... Um these um, these traditions, these Eastern traditions, or at least this shamanic path, is much closer to a absolute connection with the Mother Earth, and I would appreciate you speaking about that. Yeah, they they actually have um, several names for Mother Earth. The two that come to mind are Bumi Devi and Dark Dimata, and 
they are expressions, as, as any of the goddesses are, they're expressions of the divine feminine with the understanding that the earth herself is also a, a divine feminine being. Is this wonderful idea of uh, how the earth is supported by the cosmos, and it's called the divine pillar, and it's this elaborate construction from the primordial sea, and it eventually is this wonderful kind of um, um, relatively unstable platform that Mother Earth sits, sits upon and continually gives birth to everything on Earth. And if anything shifts in this, in this structure, you know, there are elephants and there's a conch shell and there's a great serpent and all of these carefully placed structures in this divine pillar. If anything shifts, then, of course, there are earthquakes. There is a, there's mm-hmm. this shift and maybe there's a disturbance in Mother Earth. And what I love about that, even though it's this uh, poetic metaphor, certainly, as, as many myths are, they have this, this powerful grain of truth in them, and that is how delicately balanced the Earth is. You know, Mother Earth could um, have difficulty, you know, if anything below it shifts. And so we are, we are brought in that teaching into the awareness of the um, not so much fragile nature, but that it, we have to pay attention to keeping that divine pillar as strong as is possible, keeping our focus on the support of Mother Earth. So that's a beautiful mm. um, image to help us hold on to that, because we think of this Earth as something that we walk around on. We don't even think necessarily that we're not on her, but in her, because her atmosphere is part of her. So we're moving through her atmosphere like fish swim through the sea, and we're, uh, we're like cells in her body because she's this singularity of an organism. And I think those kinds of, uh, those kinds of images that are, that are in the Nepalese tradition keep bringing us back it's like a, it's, when you look at something from a different perspective, you have a deeper awareness of it. You know, you don't really realize. I remember the first time I ever went into, up in an airplane. Mm. You know, you have some mm. sense of a landscape when you're on it. But suddenly when you're above it, you have a completely different awareness of that landscape. And I think having that as part of a spiritual tradition, and it, it makes complete sense in a shamanic tradition since that's so connected uh, to the earth and all creatures, everything having a sentience, to have that kind of image, um, I want to say, it, it, it sparks another level of, of awareness. I think that's the beauty, actually, mm. of studying different traditions, because you're seeing the perspective that it's like um, viewing something through lots of different lenses, mm. and by doing so, you get a much more complete picture of the whole. That's so beautiful, uh, all of what you just mentioned. I I was very touched. You have a, at the end of your book, Spirit Walking, you have a, um, you have a piece of poetry called Ingratitude. Yeah. And, uh, and you, you have a line that says, Blessings to the boundless cosmic ocean in which our planet rides 
And that line really touched me very much. I mean, it's what you're saying. It takes us up. It takes us up into space, like what you were saying about being up in an airplane. You know, we don't think, we, we think of sky being up, you know, and you live in a place where you have a beautiful, unbroken, beautiful, wide sky. You know, we think of sky being up, but as we know, when we look back at the Earth as, as from our satellites or from the space station, our planet is, is hanging in this embrace of the void of space. You know, it's, it's almost like nesting dolls. We are held by the Earth. The Earth is embraced by the sun's gravity, right? And the sun is embraced by her uh, sister and brother suns in the Milky Way. <laughs> and the Milky Way is, is one galaxy that uh, is embraced by this larger cosmos. So we are, we are held, imagine ourselves being embraced by uh, a series of elders, you know, like people that really care for you. And you. So maybe you're being held by your mom who is embraced by your grandmother who is embraced by your great-great-grandmother. You know, that's the kind of experience that we are actually having all the time. We are these beings embraced by the Earth, embraced by the Sun and the Milky Way and the cosmos, and indeed siblings to all the other life forms here. So it's this family of beings on the Earth being embraced. And to me, that, that, uh, that reminder... That, you know, and you have to keep refreshing that because our, our brains, you know, are very good about taking us elsewhere, taking us away from our heart. But when we are reminded to get down in that place in the heart where we know what it is I just said is true, mm. we, uh, we operate differently in the world. You know, and, and us, particularly in Western culture, we have to operate differently in the world. We're being called to it with such urgency. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, is, that's why I want to ask you um, if you would speak. I mean, yes, yes, uh, we're speaking about your book, but we're speaking about your work and how it imp important it is that uh, in the last 30 or 40 years, uh, Many of you have come along maybe from other incarnations and have learned these shamanic ways from different from different cultures and can can spread this opening to people in this country and other countries in Europe. Well, you know, in some ways, I think it's our deepest ancestors that are sort of pushing us from behind. You know, our deepest ancestors that practiced this way of life, they lived so closely to the earth. <clears throat> they didn't have any other way to live but to live closely to the earth. And they sat in that incredible darkness at night around a fire. Mm -hmm. And that their entire world was just a circle of people illuminated in that darkness. So they had a totally different sense of what community was like, what being in connection with the earth and all of her creatures, knowing the migration patterns of the animals and birds, knowing, you know, what plants were good to eat at what particular time of year. They had to know that as hunting and gathering people.
honor them every day. You speak uh, about your great-great-grandmother in the book, actually. <laughs> yeah, and it, 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 I think of that whole line, and because my, um, my mom introduced you know, started to introduce me to my ancestors when I was very small. She started to do the genealogy of my family before I was born, back way before the internet. And uh, so they they are palpable to me. And the more I I feel as though I can um, communicate with them and be present with them, they remind me of what is important. You know. They remind me of the, mm-hmm. the sanctity of life. It's not that many generations ago that people, uh, even here in the United States, you know, grew their own food and paid attention to community. Uh, you know, certainly making lots of mistakes yes. as all of, all human beings do, but they had more of a connection of where their food came from, where their water came from, who they could depend on in their in their towns or their villages. Um, how they had to take care of one another to a degree if they wanted everyone to survive. And, you know, that's, that thread, I think, is what needs to be rewoven. So I don't, even though I had to learn how to practice shamanism, in some ways I, I feel in my, in my heart it's been like a, a remembering and, you know, and I use that word, I'm saying it in that way, remembering as a, as a, the opposition of being dismembered. You know, I think in Western culture we tend to be dismembered from all the things that really nurture us deeply. We're dismembered from nature. We're dismembered from each other. We tend to be dismembered even our head dismembers us from our heart. And in addition, in certainly in North America, and that's all I can speak about uh, most keenly since I was born here, mm-hmm. we're also displaced people, whether through choice or we were brought over in ships as slaves, or uh, we also displaced the Native people that were here. So there is the sense that everyone in, in North America has this quality of unrootedness, un, um, a disconnected, displaced and there's a longing that goes with that. And then that longing produces behaviors, I think, to try to soothe or fill the hole inside. And so for me, it's this desire to reconnect to a deeper taproot. You know, I, we have wonderful mm-hmm. lush trees here in Maine mm-hmm. because we get a lot more rain than you folks do. And, uh, you know, there are trees that have shallow roots, and that's part of their their uh, structure, and there are other trees that have deep tap roots. And when we have a lot of rain and we have wind, the ones with the shallow roots blow over. But the ones with those deep tap roots, they may sway and they may have a branch break off, but they are able to stay rooted. And when we are able, whatever tradition we practice, I, I have found that shamanic uh, spirituality is something that keeps me rooted. But whatever it is that can keep us rooted to remember that wherever we happen to wander on the planet, we're really home. Mm-hmm. We can get connected with the spirits of place of where we are, because that's an important component of shamanism as well, to connect with the spirits right where you're planted, to learn what the plants are, what the animals are, what the birds are, 
where the weather patterns come from, um, to know what stars are overhead. Those things are what our deep ancestors knew. It is how they lived. And our lack of that, I think, adds to our... our uh, it's like we behave like tourists. <laughs> you know, instead of people who are actually home. Yes, yes. Um, so speak to us, Evelyn, why you chose to to give your precious time to interpreting the Nepalese shamanic path with Bola Banstola. Well, I, you know, In again, particular. I think it's, it's, what's beautiful about it is it holds, one thing that we can really use in our culture is a good balance of the masculine and feminine. That's uh, right. Uh, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's interesting. There's a, a beautiful uh, pantheon of both uh, goddesses and uh, gods. And yet, as Bola teaches, and the, the goddesses is uh, honored first, there's a wonderful long festival in the autumn where they uh, honor all the aspects of the goddess Durga. But even in a goddess, there is a masculine aspect that is honored, and in the gods, there is a feminine aspect that is honored. Now, that is something we could really use in our culture. <laughs> you know, it's, yes. a, it's such a whole way of looking at things. There is a sense of, there is, uh, there is a, um, enough variation also in the spirits that are honored that you can um, see yourself mirrored there. I think that's very important for us as human beings to see that who we are is reflected by the divine. Mm. You know, in the absence of elders, we can uh, step into a tradition that provides that same kind of role that an elder does. You know, if you grow up in a functional family, and there must be, a, you know, a few of them here. A few of us, States, a few. <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, adults around you that that mirror for you so that you learn who you are and what what uh, your place is in the world and how you can be the best person that you can possibly be. And in the absence of that kind of um, culture, because we, we don't live with our elders uh, in the same way that you would in a small village somewhere. In fact, I, I just as an aside, I said that to somebody uh, that it, it, we work with clients too, and they were saying difficulty about their parents. And I, I said, I completely hear that. And I, you know, lots of people come in with that burden that they were not sufficiently mothered or not, not did not have a, a present father or whatever it might be. I said, and I hear that. And I think it's a cultural problem that the way we live, we put a tremendous burden on two people to give us everything that a village would have given us. Yes. <laughs> you know, if we were in a in a, a, a small village, I'm thinking of a, particularly a group of hunter-gatherers, if mom and dad were not doing their job somehow one way or the other, one of the other aunties around in the village or one of somebody else's grandma would take you in and give you something to eat and let you complain and dry your tears and maybe you'd help them around the house. And there, there would be this larger container that would support a child to know who they are. And the burden that we place on, on a nuclear family in this culture 
it's it's bound to be dysfunctional in that way because we're really wired to be social primates. We're wired to have a group of people around us that help us to know who we are. You know, if we don't quite jive with our parents, well, we can say, well, I, I'm more like that person over there, or I'm, I, I like doing things like that person does. And it would be accepted because there's some sense of that entire village being a family. So it's, it, the interdependence is also part of the Nepalese tradition. They're, the uh, people that still live a traditional lifestyle live in small villages. They, they will farm and plant rice and what have you as a community. There are rituals uh, all through the year that have to do with the agricultural rhythms. The entire um, group of people in that village will contribute to what they all will harvest. They, take, they tend to take care of one another in that way and see the value because of that Eastern tradition of recognizing that everyone is divine. I mean, they greet each other with namaste, which means the divine in me sees the divine in you. There is this sense of caring uh, that everybody is somehow held, even if, if it's a village with very little, they still share what is uh, available. And they are tremendously... Um, generous people. That in you know, I'm generalizing about a culture, yeah. but I have found that the people in Nepal are incredibly generous in in their um, not just in material things, but in their presence. You know, they don't just sort of bustle by you. They greet you if they if they you we bumped into an elder. Uh, my partner is. Uh, in her 70s, and this woman was uh, probably a peer and maybe even a little older. And they bumped into one another, and I was able to witness this. And they basically said hello to one another, <laughs> namaste, and they, the woman who was Nepalese just smiled, this warm smile, and was really generous in that moment, that, that heart to generosity. Mm-hmm. And that was one little snapshot of the way that culture is wired, because again, there is this weir- awareness that everything around me is divine, and I need to behave in the way that recognizes that, and not from a from a point of obligation, but from something that arises from inside, knowing that well, of course, that's the right way to be, and they reinforce it all through the year with rituals and ceremonies and color and sound and offerings of flowers, it's a joyful expression of the sanctity of life. It's a very long-winded answer to the question, but I yeah, no. you could start to get that sense of that because the context is so different. And when you, when you step away from that and then bring that to your heart and through the book or going to Nepal or however you do that, mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to go, well, hmm, what of that can I take into myself and change my perceptions? Because so much of the work, I think, is changing our perceptions, our perceptions about ourselves, the perceptions about the world, and perceptions are learned material. You know, and I always say to people, if you've got some kind of perception in there that's functioning like a computer virus, you have the capacity to learn something new. Exactly. Learn something that replaces it. Yes. And maybe it's uh, it's sort of a more 
ensouled joie de vivre. Yes. Instead of just being a joie de vivre that's, that's based on on the senses, which I think is already excellent, yes. can be excellent, uh, it's an ensouled joie de vivre. And, and you know, it's, it's celebrating the sensory world with that awareness that, that it is ephemeral and it mm. is limited. Poignant. Yes. Poignancy, yeah. Yes, and that, it, you know, is as marvelous as, I'll use the example, our, our sense of um, sight, you know, as, as extraordinary that is, we can take in such beauty. <laughs> we can see the people and things that we love. And yet we see such a tiny, narrow spectrum of light. You know, there are creatures that can see infrared and ultraviolet. We can't. So does it mean that the, the infrared and ultraviolet aren't real? Well, we know that we have machines now can perceive that, but there are animals and insects and birds that can see on either side. The same thing with sound. We can listen to glorious music or the water running in a brook or the wind in the tree, you know, those sounds or the, you know, uh, baby cooing, whatever it might be. The purr, of, I love the purr of my cat. I love the purr of my cat. <laughs> To widen, to widen that uh, it's sort of like it's sort of like we were open to everything at babies as babies perhaps, but this this opening became a small hole. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And we had it enculturated out of us, you see. That's right. Yeah. But again, that's learned behavior, learned learned information. I I always use the example of. Uh, you know, when I was a girl, I went to school, and we had to study the map, you know, and and we had to memorize all the countries in Europe, and one of them was Yugoslavia, right? Yes. So now you look at the map, there is no Yugoslavia. <laughs> you have to memorize all the little countries that are there. Yeah. Does that mean it was wrong to memorize Yugoslavia? No, it was timely for then, but it's pretty useless now. You have to learn something new. And if we saw everything in our life as an opportunity to... Learn something new, and it may it may supplant something that we thought we knew and we were certain about. But isn't that exciting? <laughs> you know, that's the opportunity to keep growing, keep expanding, keep you know having your life continue to open up and unfold, unfold more and more uh, of the world in, as you grow and change and evolve and, and age. Frankly, you know. <laughs> the, the, yeah. Instead of having your world closed down, we could grow our entire lives. So there were there were more flavors to what was called Yugoslavia. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's like having uh, instead of seeing the ice cream sundae, now you're seeing the little sprinkles and the, <laughs> the sauce and the different flavors of ice cream. Beautiful. That's it. Beautiful. 
So, so tell me, who is Bola Banstola, who is worthy of a whole book? Oh, I tell you, Bola is a wonderful... Um, he is a traditional on one hand, and he's had enough Western education to have a pretty good grasp of English, and he also speaks Italian, and he speaks a little bit of... of uh, uh, Oh, I can't think of the language in India. There's a language in India that he speaks. He speaks Nepalese, of course. Yeah. And, you know, a smattering of French. He's, he's very worldly in that way. But it, it, the best part of Bola is that he is a big heart. He is this just enormous heart. There is a quality almost of innocence of him, even though he has traveled well and been around lots of different people. There is this childlike core in his heart that just captures you because he is very open-hearted. He's very loving. He wants so much for every every being to live well because that is the foundation of his life. You know, that's how he was raised. He sees the good in things. He's not um, jaded you know, he's experienced enough to know that you can't trust certain people. You know, that's, that's yeah. what you learn. Yeah. But there is, he maintains this joyful um, essence that is just a delight to be around. He has very easy laughter. He's, he's unafraid to make a mistake. I mean, he's just this refreshing person to be around. And he's a very good teacher. He's, he's learned how to, to take what are these traditions and, and pull together a theme for a workshop and teach some of that material in a workshop. And he teaches, uh, you know, in Italian and he teaches in English and he teaches wherever he happens to be. If he needs a translator, he gets a translator. Mm-hmm. But he's very, he because he loves people and he loves the world in general, it comes across in his work. You know, it's not something you can fake. <laughs> You know, it's this uh, just delightful essence. I, you know, in uh, in the Nepalese tradition, you you uh, refer to somebody older than you as a as a uh, big sister or a big brother. Yes. And he's younger than I am, so he refers to me as big sister, mm-hmm. and I refer to him as little brother. Yes. And there's just when you do that with someone who, uh, that you are not related to, <laughs> you know, it's a way that you greet people. There is something that, um, you know, kind of works on your psyche that, oh, yeah, of course we are related. Yes. yes. You know, yes. and it, just being around him, you feel him as family. You feel him as this, you know, person who may live far away or had a different experience than you had, but when we meet in the middle, we meet as family. And mm. that is extraordinary. So, what is that spirit world of which you both speak? Well, you know, for me, shamanism is about expanding into the into that space beyond my senses. And uh, I think about our, our deep ancestors came up with this method as a way to assist them in survival. So it wasn't, you know, let's let's all hang out around the fire and and you know, trip until 
<laughs> we fall over and go, isn't this fun? Look at the pretty colors. Mm-hmm. It was it was about finding solutions for the the needs of everyday life when they were unavailable to be solved using our ordinary senses. So in a hunter-gatherer society, if you depended on the seasonal migration of, of a herd animal, for instance, and I, even though they may go in a particular general direction, after having learned, we, we tried to uh, visit the caribou on migration one time, and there was this place set up in northern Canada where you could actually go and watch the reindeer, you know, the caribou. And uh, they didn't migrate that direction that year. So th- that's, now that's fine if you have helicopters and, you know, you have people with um, th- those, what are those little, those drones that can tell you where they are. But if you're walking on foot and you have children with you and you have elders with you, you have to know where you can intercept that group of animals. If that's your food source for a particular period of time... That's your survival, yes. That's your survival. So, you know, in, in lieu of helicopters and in lieu of drones and in lieu of, you know, all the other things that we use today to track these things, there was someone who is adept at expanding awareness and could guide using that information. And there's a, there's a wonderful... Uh, PhD in um, the UK, mm. Mike Williams, I think is his name, and that's, uh, if I misquote that, Mike, I'm sorry, I think your last name is William. Uh, he postulates that our ancestors altered consciousness or expanded awareness, like shamans do, every single night, because they were around a flickering fire, and fire flickers at the same rate as shamanic journey drumming, and entrains our brain in the same way that journey drumming does to that visionary state of awareness. So people that got good at being able to use that state, just like if there was somebody in the group that was exceptional at napping flint or making cordage, got to be the specialist at that, the one who was able to utilize that state of, of awareness became the shaman. Makes perfect sense the way yeah, you tell it. this and that practicality to me is is a source of uh, excitement for me so me that means too I, I can tap into that um, you know because you're stepping out of the ordinary time space when you're in that expanded perception so I can access all the wisdom that's behind me mm-hmm. I can access the wisdom that's way ahead of my life I can begin to get that that broader perspective that is, to me, so necessary when we're trying to make good decisions. You know, you can't really have enough information when you're trying to make an important decision. And to get that, um, 
the equivalent of the 30,000 foot view of what's going on and how to then move your life in a way that you're in the flow, that you're honoring what is around you, that you stay in connection. I, you know, in my mind, that's, that is something that's ideal. And I think more ideal now and perhaps more, more needed now because it, it, it requires that, that perception of connection and learning how to be in what I call reverent participatory relationships. Exactly, yes. To, in order to change the trajectory that we're on as a species. We need to alter our trajectory, and it doesn't have to be painful. It can actually be a joyful thing, because if we recognize, not just intellectually, that all of nature around us, it's not, they are not its, they are whose. You know, and when we interact with who's, we are investing in, in, in the, that sense of, oh, you are like me. You are different from me, but you are like me. And that, you know, we, the worst things that are happening in our culture now are about turning who's back into it's, right? So we have marginalized groups of people, and we stop thinking about them as who's, and we start to think about them as an it. And that depersonalization allows us to just go, oh, well, it doesn't matter what happens to them. So a spiritual tradition that turns that on its ear and says, not only are all those human beings whose, but the animals are whose, the birds are whose, the trees, the plants, everything, and the planet itself is a who, not an it. Now, how are you going to, to step into the relationships that are already present? You're dependent on all these beings. It's time to behave like a good family member. <laughs> pay attention to those that are elders. Pay attention to those that are that are younger than you and, and defenseless. That's that's our job. And you know, to have a spiritual tradition that is not promising, you know, that it's all going to be better in the afterlife, and instead gives you the tools to work with where you are now to deepen your experience of where you are now to become more joyfully connected where you are now and to also perceive a much larger picture of how those interconnections can actually change into perhaps a global consciousness. You know, imagine if enough people were able to get that, that deep sense of connection hardwired into them you know, so that they don't fall in and out of it because that's, you know, it's easy to do. Our brain will take us somewhere. You know, our brain is very good at that. It'll steer us off mm -hmm. somewhere to something that thinks is important. <laughs> or but someone when, who thinks they're important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, we've, we've trained it to be a little too muscular. You know, our, our, uh, we've, our we've brain? thrown a lot of effort into our brain over the years. <laughs> you know, we've, we've given it all this schooling and... Yeah. Particularly the rational brain thinks it's in charge of keeping us safe and it doesn't want us to do anything that looks too risky. I don't know. You can't see that stuff. I don't think you should trust it, it says. But the heart says, well, I, you know, I'm going to take a risk, rational brain, and you just step aside for a while. In fact, I'll give you this journey drumming, which will help you to step aside so I can see what it is you might be afraid of and decide for myself whether or not it's okay. Beautifully said, beautifully said. 
Thank you so, so, so much. Oh, you're welcome. So maybe in closing, uh, I will ask you uh, to give us uh, some of the tools that you've picked up in your career as a shaman, like perhaps you would have been um, the tender of the fire or the cobbler or the butcher. <laughs> give us a few tips to go from it to to who. I think probably the most important thing we can do in North America is to begin to notice exactly what's around your place where you live. Begin to notice what grows there, what birds visit there, what animals visit there. And begin to look at them as you would look at your, at your pets. You know, we love our pets. Mm. So begin to think about the birds that visit the trees near where you are as beings that are as treasured as your pets. That the tree itself, which trees communicate with one another, so this tree has the ability to know what the other trees are doing. They have an awareness of the sun. They have an awareness of how long to hang on to their leaves to decide how much sugar they need to store so that they'll be able to make leaves in the, in the, in the spring. We can't do that, but the trees can. So we can develop respect. We can just develop that sense of kinship. You know, extend ourselves to at least gratitude. And gratitude is a wonderful jumping off point because it's only a tiny step beyond gratitude that puts you in love, mm. in love with the natural world. It doesn't have to be, you know, a national park. Love the plants and trees and animals and birds right where you are because as you lavish your gratitude on them and perhaps your love eventually they will grow stronger because when we are grateful it not only improves our physiology we get a six hour boost in our immune system when we practice feeling grateful for 10 minutes and our feelings extend beyond our body, and this has been scientifically proven. So when we sit in a tiny little plot of land, where there are animals and birds and insects, what have you, and we feel grateful, we are feeding every one of those beings, supporting their immune systems to be strong. And they will recognize you. You may not be able to perceive it initially, but those that give that gift of gratitude the natural world are seen. They go, ah, look, there's a human who remembers. And in that remembering, something begins to change inside of us. And once it changes, you can't ever go back. Mm. I have a nickname for you. It's Wake Me Up Evelyn. <laughs> 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 Really? Oh, great. Well, listen, thank you so, so much. Um, I had a wonderful time with you, and I know everybody else will. Oh, well, I, I had a wonderful time. You asked wonderful questions, and it was, it was really fun. Good. So I wish you well, and 
I wish everybody who's listening uh, well and that together we each expand our way of being in the world that's more and more grateful so that we we can change the dominant paradigm by changing the human beings in it because our culture is simply a reflection of who we are. So as we become different beings, the world around us changes. Thank you, Evelyn Rizdek. Um, we, um, we'll be back together. I hope so. Good. Be well, my friend. Be well. Thank you. Thank you.